If you have a Bible with you today, would you look with me now at Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, or the text for today. It's kind of a long one on page 8 in your bulletin, but we'll move right through this. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Jumping down to verse 10. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure or exodus which he was about to accomplish at at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Jumping down to verse 46. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, work on us by your spirit as we hear. In Jesus' good name, amen.
So how would you react if I one day said, you know, I, I want to be married. I just don't want to have to do anything. I want a wife. Yeah, Sarah's looking at me like, oh dear. I want a wife. I like having a wife. I just don't want any demands. Thank you very much. Or what would you say if I said, I, they should make me a professional athlete. I want to be a professional athlete. I would get a real kick out of that. I just don't want any calls for leaving any skin in the game. I don't want anyone pushing me about how I need to be out there dropping sweat and blood. But I, should, I would like the privilege of being an athlete. You'd say, man, stick with Xbox. You've got to pay to play. You've got to pay your dues. This is not just something that's given to you as a gift. You've got to earn it. You know, when you meet the biblical Jesus, and I mean the biblical Jesus, not these lame figures who sometimes appear in popular religious lore, but the Jesus of the Bible, you encounter something unique. And it's actually a little bit hard to put together sometimes. When you meet Jesus, you meet pure gift and intense demand. Right there in the same Jesus. Pure gift. I mean, you get it all. You don't have to pay to play with Jesus. This is his gift. He says to you, a sinner, who deserve God's wrath, whether you think so or not, he says, because of what I will do, and it's just what I will do, all of your sins are freely forgiven. Freely. You don't, no cost involved at all. And in fact, it's better than that. My standing with God is your standing now at no cost. In fact, it's better than that. You get to inherit my Father's kingdom, the whole creation, on my merits alone. All that, pure gift, not a, not a cent you bring to pay for all that or to repay any of it. And then Jesus says to you, with great love, now you're with me. Now you're with me. And that's some intense demand. Jesus is not a product. Yay, I've got the Jesus product. My life is better. Jesus is a king. He's the king. And in this chapter, at the end of the chapter, in verse 51, which I didn't read, Jesus is going to set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem as it functions in Luke's gospel, you know that's like saying Jesus is going to the Death Star. <laughs> we'll get to that. But here, in the last scenes of his Galilee ministry, not in the south where Jerusalem is, but up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. In this last scene or scenes, he gets his 12 together. You notice there in verses 1 and 2, he gets the 12 together, and in this chapter, something changes. And I just want to talk a little bit about what it is that changes here, and then I'd like to think about what it has to do with us just for a minute. So I want to pick up in verse 1. This is the first mission, or what I will call the start of skin in the game. Because what's different in verses 1 and 2 is that these guys who have been called disciples, that means they have been called to follow, the called are now sent. They're called, in verse 10, apostles. That's a Greek word that just means apostolos, just means one who is sent. So the called people are now sent people. They are now involved in Jesus' work, Jesus' mission. What Jesus has been doing these 12 are now sent to, to do, and they're given his, uh, his authority, his power even, to do it. I mean, casting out any demon that they encounter, healing all diseases. But they're going to do this now. They're going to do it, and they're going to do it without Jesus right there all the time. 
they are going to be, starting now, what C.S. Lewis calls little Christs. Little Christs, little messiahs. Now, I just want to say a quick word of caution here. I, I don't think we should immediately apply this to ourselves. There are Christians who have looked at this mission and said, oh, that's what Christians are supposed to do. This is the 12. This is the 12. That's the one place where you should hear a little ting in your head. This is the 12. There was another 12, remember? The 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the foundation of a new Israel that Jesus is building, what will eventually be called the church. Their, their mission is unique. I do think, though, there is a reminder for us right out of the gate, and that is that people who follow Jesus, like you and me, disciples of Jesus, do not get to be spectators. Following Jesus is not a spectator sport. I like watching Jesus do things. I like watching Christians do things. I like just watching. I like being comfortable and watching. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you will not just be on the bench watching. You will be in the game in some way. But the 12 are uniquely occupied here. And I'd like to notice just a couple quick things about their mission here. One is that these 12, they have something to do because Jesus has already done something. That might seem fairly obvious, but it's important throughout all of Luke's writings on into the book of Acts that the, uh, the, the mission of the 12 is always building on what Jesus has already said and Jesus has already done. They are eventually going to build the foundation of an entire worldwide edifice called the church, but the cornerstone is laid before they start building. That's one thing to notice. Another thing to notice is that they are dressed like Israel leaving Egypt. They are to go on a journey, but Jesus says, you're not allowed to take provisions. They don't carry enough for the journey. Kind of like Israel had to run out of Egypt and they didn't have enough to survive in the wilderness. They couldn't carry enough to survive all that way in the wilderness. Kind of like these, these 12. And just like the Exodus where Israel's 12 tribes left Egypt, so now the way that these apostles, these disciples are dressed, literally dressed for the journey, it's a sign the times are changing. Kind of like they did in the Exodus. This is, in, this is a time of God showing his power against powers that hold his people captive and releasing them. Just the way they dress is a sign of that. And so that's why people who have tried through the centuries to make this description normative for Christians, you know, the idea of a vow of poverty or something like that, they're just missing the uniqueness of the historical moment here. Something else you'll notice is that the 12 are to live with their hearers. I find this really kind of touching. They don't hold themselves apart from the people that they talk to in these villages, nor Jesus says he's supposed to go. He says, stay in the house you go into the first time. Don't be like, you know, I don't like the bed here. I'm going to move over to the next place, see if I can find better accommodations. No, don't be looking for the best house. <laughs> Just live among these people, enter the simplicity of their lives, rely on their provisions, because you're building a relationship as you speak about the kingdom of God to them. And Jesus tells the 12 before they even leave, he says, you should expect opposition. There'll be places where they won't receive you. You're going to have to shake some dust off your feet. You will be opposed. And that too is a long story that will carry all the way into the book of Acts. But for all we know, things go pretty well on this first mission, this first outing, you know, good, good preaching, good healings, good things going on. And then, you know, the 12 come home and verse 10, we'll pick up now in verse 10, they come home and it's time to chill. You know, kind of like me at the end of a Sunday, I'm like, you know what, time to chill. And they're ready to chill. You know, Jesus, there's this great lake house up on Galilee. We should go, like, relax. And Jesus goes, you know, he goes with that, and they go up, and they're going to relax. Only problem is the crowds find out, you know, they like Jesus because he heals them, and he does interesting things. And so these pesky crowds, they find them as they try to get away, and they have this long day of ministering to all these people who have so many needs. 
And in verse 12, you'll notice, they find themselves at the end of this day in what the disciples call a desolate place. I'm tempted to call it a wilderness with a hungry multitude and no food. There should be another little ting in your head. Where have we ever heard about a desolate place, a wilderness where there's a huge multitude, they don't have any food? Well, the disciples, they, you know, they propose this very obvious solution. You know, Jesus, we're within striking distance of some great hotels and some great restaurants, so let's just send people into town. They can get what they need, and that makes perfect sense. There is absolutely no reason for Jesus to do what he does next, but he's after something here, and he does it. And he says in the beginning of verse 13, he says, no, you feed them. Kind of like if there were no bagels today, and I'm in the basement, and we find out there's no bagels for all you hungry hordes. And I say, yeah, we should feed these people. And you say, all right, I'll run to the bagel shop. I say, no, no, you don't understand. Feed them right now. Give them food. <laughs> That's what they're staring down. 5,000 just men, let alone, and bagel group, and feed them. And, you know, being sensible fellows, they start scurrying around, sizing up their resources. We've got five loaves, two fish. It's going to be a real stretch to, stretch to make this work. They are completely missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus is, as I said, creating a new Israel. And he's putting his finger here on the problem with old Israel. It's always been the problem with the original 12. And think about what you know about their story. Old Israel, no matter how many times God displayed before these people his sovereign, steadfast, almighty, life-giving love, you know, smashing their oppressors in Egypt, feeding them in the wilderness, water out of a rock, a whole land that they didn't earn. I mean, no matter how many times God showed his love and his faithful love and his life-giving love to these people, somehow Israel, just the next time there was any problem, they would not trust God, just wouldn't do it. It was the endless story of Adam or Abraham, and they always were like Adam, did not trust the Lord, and so they wouldn't obey him and even turned to other so-called gods. And, well, Jesus is putting his finger on that very thing here. And these disciples, they've lived a little bit of an exodus life. You know, I said they were sent. They've had to rely on provisions from God through people on the way. They know a little bit about exodus life in the wilderness. But Jesus now, he's taking this to a whole new manna, and he basically says to them, you give, here we are in the wilderness, no food. Give them manna. Give them manna. Make it rain, bread. And, of course, what manna? What manna, Jesus? What manna? Do you see the point? You're with the manna maker. You're with the manna maker. That's the whole point. And somehow, these disciples, they are surprisingly obtuse, aren't they? You're with the, you're with the one who makes manna. One commentator says the principal constraint here is not their lack of resources, but their lack of faith. And so Jesus, he sees what's going on. They, don't, they are not connecting. All they need to do is turn to Jesus and say, all right, Lord, in your name, make it rain bread because you're the manna maker. That's all they need to do, that they are not connecting who they're with. And so Jesus divides up the crowds, kind of like Moses divided Israel in Exodus 18, and he makes manna, <laughs> and he makes bread from heaven, and he gives it to the 12 to give away. 
And he kind of rubs it in their faces just a little bit, I think, at the end, because he shows them at the end. He says, this is how I take care of my Israel when I'm making manna. There's leftovers for all. In fact, tonight when we back, go back to the village, y'all are taking a basket of bread with you to make the point. You know, in the, old, in the old Israel, you weren't allowed to take the manna and keep it overnight. It would rot. It would breed worms. And this manna, Jesus says, leftovers. We got, we got breakfast. This is how I take care of those who are my Israel. And they're not getting it. And, I, you know, the question as we come to the end of this miracle is just how should we feel about this new Israel after this? Because they're on an incredible mission. They don't even know yet how big this is. Their mission, as you're going to see as we move on, will be to spread a kingdom feast of what only Jesus provides. The spirit of their mission in the world is going to be come, actually come all nations, come all peoples, and receive what only our king can provide for you. That will be their mission. They just here do not seem very sure of who this king is and what he can do. Even after all they've seen, it's like they, they got this wobble when it comes to connecting. Okay, this is an opportunity for Jesus to show who he is. Their faith hasn't even been that severely tested yet, and they're already, there's wobble in the wheel. And that brings us to verse 18. So the first mission and what we can learn from that. But now I want to turn, this raises, this first mission, it raises some pressing questions for continuing mission. Some pressing questions for continuing mission because it's no accident in verse 18 that the next time Jesus and his disciples are alone in the quietness of prayer, he asks them this pointed question. Who do people say I am and who do you say I am? He asks them about his identity. Now on one hand, it's encouraging. These disciples, you'll notice in verse 19, they have moved beyond the, the puzzled crowds who think Jesus, maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead or Elijah or some prophet come back from the grave. The disciples are beyond that. Peter answers for them all in verse 20, and he says, and it's absolutely true what he says. He says, this we know, you are God's Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've all been waiting for all these thousands of years in Israel, the, the Savior, the King who will crush the serpent and save us from all of our enemies and reconcile us to God and give us peace. You're, you're, that, you're that one. You're the Messiah. And that's good. That's very encouraging. But on the other hand, it is troubling, as Jesus continues to speak in verse 21, it is troubling that under pressure so far, storms, for example, hungry multitudes, their faith in this Messiah hasn't held up particularly well, has it? Why is that so troubling? Because Jesus basically begins telling them in verse 22, you haven't even seen the storms that are coming yet. The Son of Man, he says, language from Daniel chapter 7, we'll think about in a second here. The Son of Man is in for a very hard time. Israel's scriptures promise, they foretell, that Messiah, when he comes, will be a suffering servant of the Lord. And he spells it out. He is going to suffer, be rejected by all the religious leadership, he's going to be killed and on the third day raised. So, I mean, there's a, this is the first time Jesus has really brought this up. There's a, it's going to get way worse for the Son of Man. And we have this question from what we've seen so far, like how are the 12 going to react when all of that happens to this one that they say they trust in? Like, that's going to be some heavy stuff to, to sail through. Now, interesting, you know, Jesus says, I'm, I'm the son of man. So there's this moment in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel sees a vision. And there are these great beasts in the vision that represent the great kingdoms of the world. And th there's this moment where 
this one called the Ancient of Days, who's God, is on a throne. And this, this other figure, one like the Son of Man, he comes in the clouds of God's own glory and he receives from the Ancient of Days all the kingdoms of the world as his own. So that's in Israel's Bible, that this Son of Man, that Jesus says, I'm it, he's going to receive eventually all the dominion of all earthly kingdoms. He will rule all nations. But how will these disciples react when it looks like his enemies have actually won, that the beasts killed him instead of him receiving the dominion of the beast kingdoms? I mean, if these 12 are the foundation of a new Israel, it seems like we're off to a really shaky start here. And so, alongside the pressing question here of who Jesus is, we can also feel this pressing question of who these 12 actually are. Will they be Will they be God's new, his new Israel? Will they be his authentic Israel who keep faith, who are faithful, who keep trusting and obeying as they follow Messiah into the jaws of death? Are they really the new Israel? And Jesus takes a moment in verse 23 to make something clear because you'll notice in verse 23, he turns in after talking about his coming sufferings, he turns and he says this to all. And he makes something clear. This question of being an authentic disciple of Jesus. Who are the true disciples? Who are the real Israel? This is not a question just for these 12. This is a question for all of those who are hearing him. Because he goes on to say, if you come after me, you need to basically be ready to give up absolutely everything, including your own life. Why? Because if you know who Jesus is, and you know that he will, after horrific sufferings, he will, from God, receive all the kingdoms of the earth. And he will rule all of them with God's own authority. If you actually know that's who Jesus is, that's the plan, that's the program, and he's the one. Let's say I'm following that Jesus, and I know that's who he is. It should be a no-brainer. Better lose my life Better to lose my life than forsake him, right? Jesus says, you try to hold on to your life instead of holding on to me, you will end up losing it. If you lose your life for my sake, you're with me, you're good. And he says, you ought to be willing, we ought to be willing as those who are following him, we should, we should prefer him to the entire world, what does it profit you, Jesus asked. Let's say you gain the entire world. You have arrived, man. But you're not with Jesus, and so you lose yourself. What, what's the gain? I mean, this is just a simple cost-benefit analysis. What have you gained? We should prefer Jesus to the entire world. Why? It's all going to be his anyway. <laughs> He's going to own and rule the entire world, and so those who are with him will receive all of that with him. And so it should be just a no-brainer. If I have to lose my life following him, I guess that's how it is. If I lose everything in the world following him, I guess that's how it is. If I can get the entire world by leaving him, by forsaking him, no chance. That's how a real disciple thinks because they know who Jesus is. And Jesus tells them in verse 25, 26 rather, he says, if those who are hearing him there are muddled about this, like you're kind of like wobbly on this thing of who Jesus is and what where the real value is, he says, I won't acknowledge you when I shortly am exalted to that throne that I will be exalted to. 
And so this is a very pointed question he is asking. Where do you, as he looks at his whole audience, not just the 12, where do you stand? Where do you stand? That's the question. And I can imagine the 12 standing there as they're hearing this heavy stuff and saying, you know, it would really help if we could just maybe, Jesus, see a little bit of that glory <laughs> that you say you're going to receive. You know, it'd help us be settled more in following you if we could just kind of see that glory a little bit. It'd help us be more assured of who you really are and who you're going to be. It's as if Jesus in verse 27 anticipates that thought in their heads, and he basically says, done. There are some of you standing here who are not going to die until you see the kingdom of God. And eight days later, look what Jesus does. This is really something. He takes these three pillars, verse 28, Peter, James, and John. They'll later be pillars of the church. And he takes these three pillars from the 12 up on a mountaintop to see some glory. This should be another little ting in your head. Where have you heard this before? Mountaintop, glory. And he gets up there and they're praying and the disciples fall asleep, you know, kind of like some of you. Yeah, we all get, get this way in prayer, right? Oh, you know, I'll just keep my eyes open. And suddenly Jesus changes in front of them. And he starts to shine, to radiate with glory you can't even look at. Glory that is terrifying. Glory like Sinai. Glory, that glory that just struck terror into the hearts of Israel of old. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the greatest Old Testament prophets, Moses, of course, the towering figure of the Old Testament, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets after Moses, they are with him, and we see there in um, verse 33, they are talking with Jesus quite excitedly because they were looking forward to this man talking about this exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is weird, and oh man, we're going to get into this in time. Like the new exodus is not from Egypt, it's from Jerusalem. Man, lots to think about there. And there's this whole like excited conversation between these two great prophets and this shining, glorious being that Jesus has become. And Peter wakes up, you know, and Peter has usually got something to say, and he wakes up and he just starts kind of babbling about, you know, we should build three tabernacles here, one for you, Jesus, and one for Moses and Elijah, and, uh, Elijah, and he's, he's like thinking and talking about tents like old Israel had, and we're told in verse 33, not knowing what he said. I mean, Peter, just ignore Peter. <laughs> he doesn't understand what's going on here at all. And so God sets, comes and he sets the record straight. And this glory cloud, like Sinai, this glory cloud descends on this mountaintop. And Israel's God sets the record straight for these three pillars of the coming Israel. And God himself, I wonder what it sounded like to hear these words thundering out of the cloud. This is my son. This is my chosen one. This is my son, and this is my Messiah. And just in case you don't get the point, listen to him. Boom! And they are seeing, as Jesus promised, the kingdom of God. Because what this is saying is that this one who brought you up on the mountain and is here with you, he is God from God. He is the son of the high king himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, God Almighty, God says, God goes on record in the glory cloud that we saw at Sinai, this is the one, this is my son and the chosen one who the savior of the world. And in him, my rule is here. In him, my kingdom is on the earth. And then the cloud, the cloud evaporates and we're told it's just Jesus. And I like to imagine God 
you can hear God laughing in the silence. Any questions, gentlemen? Well, they don't talk as they go down the mountain. But a question there is, and it lingers here, do they get it now? Do they get it? Is anyone else ready to get it? Gosh. Beloved saints, Jesus people, if you and I are going to tell this world that through Jesus, God's rule is here. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, it is here. It is unfolding in the world. That is the big news. If we're going to say that to the world, we really must know who Jesus is. And our lives must show what we know. That he is, in fact, the king over everything. We read it in the uh, baptism scripture. All authority in heaven and earth is his and absolutely nothing is worth forsaking him. Our lives need to show that nothing's worth forsaking him. He is the pearl of great price. He is worth living for. He is worth dying for. Because I have noticed something as I've listened to non-Christians over the years, people from outside the faith. People outside the Christian faith will sometimes mock Christians for living like we believe so much. They will tell you you're crazy how can you be such a, how can you be so credulous? How can you be such a believer? And they sometimes will mock. That's okay. That's fair. But I've noticed something else. Those outside the faith really despise Christians who live like they don't believe. I mean, it's one thing to be a crazy believer. It's another thing altogether to hold on to this faith in public. And it's just blindingly obvious. You don't really believe this, do you? You're always apologizing for your Bible and what it says and this, this idea that he's king and your life. Like, it doesn't look like you actually believe he is who you say he is. They just despise Christians whose lives don't match their profession, who are not hardcore believers. Because they ask an excellent question, these people from outside the Christian faith. Is that really all your Jesus is worth? How, what, what, then why are you following him? Is, is he not worth sacrificing for? Is he not worth dying for? Is he not worth losing a little popularity? Is he not worth a little bit of suffering? Then why do you follow him? And they despise. And in a way, you can understand we need to be clear, who is this Jesus? What is he worth? There's a great story. I, I, I once met a Christian artist, Christian musician named Steve Camp, and he told a story from his younger years about, he knew, you guys remember Keith Green? You heard that name? So he knew, he knew Keith Green personally. And uh, one day Steve Camp went on a mission trip, and while he was on the mission trip, he got mugged. He got really hurt. And he came home and he called his friend Keith Green and he, he was telling Keith Green how he got mugged and man, it was just so bad and I just had, you know, I, I, I'm, I got all these wounds and you know, it was kind of going on and on and Keith Green just stopped him. I'll let you judge whether this is the best way to talk to a Christian brother, but Keith Green basically said, stop. You're following Jesus. Stop whining. So you took some bruises for Jesus. Stop whining. This is Jesus.
Don't get me started, and don't get you started, I'm sure, on how many Christians in North America won't put themselves out at all to follow Jesus. Do we know who he is? There's a last little important detail, and this is really something I just want to note quickly before we're done. Because you notice at the very end, one place that our convictions about who Jesus is and about his kingdom, one place those convictions really show is in our social lives. Do you notice this? Because like us, these 12, you know, they're still growing in their faith in Jesus, and they do need to grow more, and it shows in their social lives because you notice the status-seeking Beginning in verse 46, they're arguing. Now think about this, they're with the king. <laughs> they're with the king, and they're arguing about who's greatest. And of course, Jesus just says, the least among you is the greatest, the one who's most like this little child. And, you know, it's this, this spirit of I'm greater, I'm better, I'm more important. Jesus, this king, he receives his throne, he receives his glory by dying for his enemies. I mean, that's the kind of king he is. I'm going to get my crown by dying on a cross for my enemies. That's the king you're with. I'm going to be the Passover lamb in this new exodus. They're going to put my blood on the doorposts and lintels. Being with this Jesus is not about status. It's about service. If we know who he is, it'll change our social lives. But it's interesting in verse 49, it's not just their status-seeking, you know, the kind of competitive thing between them. It's also their sectarianism. And churches do this, don't they? We're it. Those goofy churches over there, <laughs> we're it. We saw this guy casting out demons in your name, Jesus. We basically told him to stop it because he's not with us. He's not one of the 12. Jesus is on this earth as king to make disciples of all peoples and all nations. He wants prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles. And in fact, he even wants some Pharisees. There's no room for a sectarian spirit. We're it. Are we prepared to welcome all those our king welcomes? These are social questions that flow from knowing who Jesus is and what his kingdom's about. So these are interesting times in this new Israel. Well, you'll notice that Jesus, and I love this, he's got some, he's, there's some, <laughs> these disciples are a little bit of a mess, but he loves them freely, he loves them fully, he loves them faithfully, his love is pure gift, he is for them, no matter how confused they might be, that is his pure gift, and by the power of his grace alone, in time putting his own Holy Spirit in them, they will, they will, this is his intense, kindly demand, they will become little Christ's. For the blessing of all nations, this ragtag group, and beloved by the same gift of Jesus and the same grace and power of Jesus, so will we. So will we. Well, it's time to go to Jerusalem. See you next week. Bless these things to our hearts, Father, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.